Well, I don't do much uh, speaking today, and that will become, of course, quite obvious. But um, when Roger commands me, I have learned to do what I'm told. Amen. <laughs> and as I'm on home territory, it's rather a pleasure to come back, as I'm not often here. Have you ever set out to preach the gospel and find that you are forbidden, as far as you can tell, by the Lord from doing so? Quite decisively and directly, he puts a no in your face and you know that you're not allowed to proclaim the gospel to a place that you knew to be very, very needy. I wonder if that's ever been your experience. It hasn't been mine. And I doubt if it is normally our experience, but you will find that in Acts chapter 16, verse 6. If you haven't got a Bible, do find one. They're up here. They're in a dreadful state. If anybody likes to give some money towards the proclamation, (laughs) those must be the best buggy Bibles that you've ever seen. Not only are they in pieces, but I think they're full of bacteria. They could get them cheap from ten of those. I know, I know. (laughs) I never know how ten of those makes a profit. Probably doesn't. Acts chapter 16 verse 6 we're not going to stay here but it's just to remind you of this wonderful Paul and his companions travelled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word, word in the province of Asia well that's one of the most important uh, passages in the Acts as far as we're concerned and actually one of the most exciting because of course this is where we came in What it means is that Paul is told to leave the Oriental world, namely what is known today as Turkey, and cross over to uh, Macedonia, which is Europe, though they wouldn't have called it Europe in those days. I don't know how... I wonder sometimes how far he saw how significant that was, because it must have been very frustrating to come to Bithynia and to come to Phrygia and to come to these places and suddenly find that the Lord says, no, I don't want you to preach the gospel there. So, as you know, they cross over northern. Uh, uh, they cross over to northern uh, Greece, as we would call it today, and they come to this very well-known city already of Philippi, and of course that's the gateway to the Western world, and that's where we come in. And even Paul, well, he must have realised, of course, that the road was open to Rome, and if the road is open to Rome, it's open to the West, as we would call it today. And if it's open to the West, it's open even to Britain. And so the gospel came even to us. So this is really one of the most significant moments in the whole of the Acts of the Apostles, as far as we're concerned, because it's Paul leaving the Oriental world behind and coming to the Western world. And as we all know, the Oriental world, Christian-wise, is very different, isn't it, from the Western world. It is in the West that we have been so astonishingly blessed. And there is a place by the river, a place of prayer, and there Lydia is converted and the church is born. Now, what I want to do is to turn to Philippians, please. That's where we're going to be this morning. To this place where Paul came. Apparently very few, if any, Jews. There are, of course, no synagogue, but this little tiny group of people praying and this distinguished lady uh, being converted. I'm not going to give an overview of Philippians. If I did that, we should be here at tea time. I'm not even going to give an introduction to the letter, but I want to isolate for our study one theme. 
I guess even if a young Bible student was asked to give one theme for Philippians, they would say it was joy. Uh, I have at home a little commentary, which is a very good one indeed, and which has the uh, subtitle of Joy in the Lord. Everyone knows that one, don't they? That's fairly elementary. And joy is mentioned 14 times as a noun or a verb in Philippians, which is four times more frequent than in Paul's other letters. And the verse that puts it, of course, in a nutshell is uh, chapter 4 and verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. I personally think the most important word in some ways there is the word always, as we're going to see. Because when you read the commentaries, and this is true of the little commentaries I've been reading today, there are about 4,320 commentaries that you can read today in Philippians. And and, uh, lots of them are excellent, aren't they? You get something new from each different one. Uh, But this particular commentary that I'm reading uh, has left out one very important thing. And that is that Philippians is not only full of joy, most strikingly full of joy, but it's strikingly full of pain. And without pain, you have a fake Christianity, don't you? A false idea of what the gospel is. And that's why this word always, as we're going to see before we get to the end, is so very important. We're able actually to rejoice, so this is where we're going at the end. We're actually going to be able to rejoice in suffering and pain when things are not apparently joyful. We're going to see this in two verses only. We're only going to study two verses this morning, really, in their context. They take us to the very heart of the letter. I'm going to divide the letter into two halves, chapters 1 and 2 and chapters 3 and 4. Um, Probably you realize from the commentaries that you studied, it gets actually rather boring um, when you're a theological student that people try to uh, cut Philippians up into several letters, And the most popular way is the saying that there are two letters, chapters 1 and 2 and chapters 3 and 4. So I have cut them up into two. So I think the theme that I'm going to give you this morning, and I hope will bless you, actually ties the two halves together. So we're going to look now at verse number 1. And we turn to Philippians chapter 1. And the verses in Philippians chapter 1, verses... uh, 27 to the end, are con- they control the first half of Philippians. By the way, I'm not going to give the reasons for dogmatic statements. It takes too long. So I'll make a dog- dogmatic statement and say these verses, 27 to 30, control the first half of Philippians. Whatever happens, brothers, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, when I come, and whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. And of course he knows perfectly well that they're not, because Epaphroditus, who's been sent to Philippi, sent to to Rome to be a kind of servant to the apostle, has reported very plainly that the church at Philippi is divided. So this is a hopeful statement. I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. Verse 28, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Well, there may be frightening days ahead. By the way, it's a compliment, isn't it? When the devil starts to put his full weight against us, it means that the church is growing. 
Church has been growing for a number of years in this country, hasn't it? And therefore the opposition has been getting stronger. And therefore young Christians may very well find themselves being frightened by those who oppose them. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Now we come to the great verse, which is the key to the first half of Philippians. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, notice that the Christian life is named here, described here, as a struggle. And he says in verse 29, or rather he uses in verse 29, what we would call grace language. We know that we're saved by grace. This is grace language. It is literally, uh, you have been granted by the grace of God, not only to believe, but also to suffer. It's been freely granted as a grace gift that you should have a struggle as you preach the gospel to others. A quote from the commentary I'm reading. God rewards and endorses believers with the gift of suffering. Well, that's not very cheerful, is it? But that's what that verse says. And what suffering does he talk about? Well, it's pretty, it's pretty tough stuff, isn't it? Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, that's when he first came to Philippi, you remember, and I don't need to remind you that he was immediately put in, flogged and put in prison, and now here that I still have. And, of course, it's written from Rome where he is imprisoned and finding himself at the, uh, in great difficulties with superior Christians who are preaching the gospel but don't like him. Because, as you know, the church was in Rome before Paul got there, and it would only human nature, wouldn't it, be a little bit irritated by the great apostle arriving and clearly being very much more important than you were. And so we get this extraordinary picture in uh, Paul in Rome <coughs> that the fine Christians there preach the gospel in order to annoy him. How they do that, I don't know. So why verse 29? And this is the key to the reason this letter is written, because it's been such a shock. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned uh, uh, Castle Jr.'s work. Um, Castle Jr. came to St. Helens uh, about six months ago with this enormous uh, book show. It's quite astonishing, isn't it? And uh, Nobody seemed to go near it, so I felt I ought to set an example and buy a book. Um, my shelves are creaking already, and the foundations of my house where I live are already in danger from books. But I thought I ought to have one more. So I bought at a, a wonderful price, which you'll get from Castle Junior, in her words by Patricia Sinton. Actually, I've enjoyed that book more than more than most in the last uh, three months it's a wonderful book on missionary, a missionary story really, a thrilling missionary story I do think our bookstores ought to have exciting books as well as theological books, don't you? Um, and you know that's, that's better than any fiction good old Jonathan may he long flourish and there's a story uh, of this Patricia Sinjan who was a, a missionary nurse in Morocco and uh, uh, very rare to find converts and some dear woman was converted, went home and told everybody at home that she would become a Christian and uh, soon had a baby they soon had masses of babies, these women in Morocco and uh, 
the custom apparently is that all the women around help you. You don't have one professional midwife, you have lots, all the local women help you and you help them. And because she had witness to them, not one of the local women came near her. She was left in very primitive conditions to have this baby all on her own. And the only midwife she had was her little daughter, age seven. And she comes back, she comes back to Patricia, the nurse, and she hits the table. I won't hit it hard because this thing might move. She comes out and hits the table hard and says, you never told us. It turned out that she's saying, you never told us about the price and cost of discipleship. It's quite a telling story of how she came back week after week to be told about the opposition to Jesus and so on. It leaves a question in my notes that we can't discuss now. Do you, as an evangelist, tell them? Do you, in your evangelism, tell them the cost of discipleship? It's quite a tricky one, isn't it? Mm. I was, oh, this is long ago, and my memory may fail me, but I was leading a mission to students at Oxford University. And one night I preached on the cost of discipleship. I noticed at the back of the church, there's a good crowd of students, and I noticed at the back of the church, the man who'd been my camp leader when I was led to, camp, I was led to Christ as a boy to boys camp age 15, and there was my old camp leader sitting at the back. Two days later, a letter arrived. One always trembled at his letters, really. <laughs> he did not fear or favor anyone. He told them the truth about their behavior. And it said something like this, Dear Dick, it was wonderful to hear you uh, on Wednesday night, but that's not the gospel. You can imagine that set me back a bit. In other words, preach Christ. I, uh, and I don't know what else the letter said, but I, I certainly trembled to receive it. And I thought, well, did I fail the students on that evening? In my preaching of Christ crucified and risen to these students, they knew a little bit more than students today. Students today, of course, know nothing. Was I preaching the gospel, or was this a, a, a byway, telling them the cost of discipleship? Well, you must tell me the answer. So what this uh, dear Moroccan lady was saying was, you didn't tell me that it was going to be so costly. It's lovely, they went through the Bible week after week and uh, she learned all about Christ and how he bore suffering for her. <laughs> and Patricia the nurse told her when she went back and the other ladies had babies, she was to do to them what they had not done to her. She said, really, that's impossible. But in the end she learned to do that and of course through that preached Christ to them. Well, Paul does here, you see. That's what he's doing to the Philippians. I don't need to tell you that it's one of his, if not his favorite church. They loved one another. There don't seem to be vast problems at Philippi. It's just a delight of a letter to read, isn't it? Mm. Um, and yet, apparently, they needed to listen to verse 29. It is very striking. Had you not realized, he's saying, that it's granted to you not only to believe in him, that was a great joy, out of darkness into light, but also to suffer for him. It's as though they hadn't really learned that. So the rest of Philippians 1, part 1, is taken up with the reason 
why the Christians have been so vulnerable and why they've been unable to stand up to this suffering when it came. And that, of course, is in verse 27. The reason they'd been so vulnerable was that they were not united. They were not standing as one man. And so the whole of chapter 2, this is why the part 1 of Philippians all holds together. The whole of chapter 2 is, as you know, about this different spirit, the spirit of Christ, that enables us to stand together. Talk about taking a sledgehammer to crack a nut. I mean, the whole of chapter 2, with this magnificent passage about the incarnation, about Christ coming down from heaven, him being a servant and so on, all of this stuff in chapter 2 is with one purpose only, to bring the Christians at Philippi to their senses, to put aside their problems with one another, and to be united. Extraordinary. Pretty tough nut. Incidentally, on verses 5 to uh, 11, we're not going to go into them now, more tons of Christian literature have written on this in the, in, the, uh, in the theological academy than any other part of the New Testament. Uh, because the canotic theory, as it was called, when I was a student, you know, we had to write essays on this, was what did Christ lay aside when he came to earth? And, of course, what pleased liberalism is the idea that he laid aside any knowledge outside human knowledge. And therefore that opened the door to say that he could make mistakes. And so this is a terrifically important issue, of course, in the 30s and 40s and 50s. I think it's really largely not quite, I dare say, at university you still have to write essays on it. But I think really that it has been answered. I was interested in... I read a bit about it, obviously. Um, I was interested how often people go to other writers to interpret it, whereas actually one of the rules of biblical interpretation is to let the Bible interpret the Bible. Mm. So when I was reading chapter 4, and I came to verse 5, it's a fascinating <coughs> little verse. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Let your forbearance be uh, known to all. This was the comment in the old international commentary on verse 5 on the meaning of forbearance. The idea is, now listen, do not make a rigorous and obstinate stand for what is your just due. Now verse, that verse interprets the whole of chapter 2. Do not make a rigorous and obstinate stand for what is your just due. So your just due is praise for a job and somebody else takes it. Your just due is to get a job and somebody else gets it. Your just due is, to, is somebody to be rewarded when you ought to have been rewarded. It's a very painful thing to have these things snatched from you. I'm going to use an absurd illustration, but it actually happens to be a true one, of a church I knew, and I, I'm, sure you could, I'm sure you could tell stories just like this where a dear Christian lady had done the flowers on the communion table for what, I don't know how many it was, eight, nine, ten years and the young pastor's young wife said to him one day I wonder if we could bring Jane into the church why don't you ask Jane to do the flowers on the communion table next Sunday and the young pastor not realizing he was walking into a trap of course said what a good idea 
So he asked Jane, who was hovering on the edge of the church fellowship, to do the flowers the next Sunday. And this older woman simply could not take it. Actually, in the end, she left the church. Because it was her just due. That was her job. It was a job she'd done for eight years, a job she'd done superbly well, a position that was hers by right, suddenly snatched by some young whippersnapper. And the pastor, bless his heart, like many young pastors being tactless, had forgotten even to say anything. Now, could you have a more ordinary situation than that? But you must have met situations like that many times in life. You may have been, uh, I've experienced pain of this sort, when something which was your just due was not given to you. The whole of chapter 2, brothers, brothers, is about that. Isn't it extraordinary? If you have any encouragement from being united to Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and perhaps do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Very difficult for the woman of eight years' experience to believe that Jane was better than herself. She obviously wasn't. That's what Philippians 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, is fundamentally all about. It brings us very, very close to reality. So, part 1 then, I'll summarize by reading again verse 29. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And that is to have what is your just due taken away from you as just one illustration of a big issue. Well, now we turn to part two of Philippians chapter three and four. And the key verse here is chapter three and verse ten. Actually, this is a seminal verse in the whole New Testament. It will never, never go out of date as being a, a key to our understanding of the faith and in our preaching. I want you to know, I want to know Christ, says Paul, and I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. As you know, the normal order is from the cross to the resurrection, but here the order is from the resurrection to the cross. I want to know Christ in all his fullness. I want to have his resurrection life flowing through me, and the result will be fellowship in his suffering. Now, I'm not going to try to define the dogs of, of, of verse 2 of chapter uh, 3. They're probably the Judaizers, aren't they, uh, wanting to circumcise the Gentile Christians and therefore make them kosher. And I'm not going to try to define the enemies, verse 18. I've just come across a commentary that contradicts everything that I ever thought that meant. So, <laughs> uh, therefore, I'm out of my depth at the moment on that. But the clue that Sherlock Holmes, if he'd been a Christian, would have been able to discover, <laughs> the clue is in verse 12a. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, fully mature, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. I press on to seize 
that for which Christ sees me well that should be for every one of us shouldn't it Christ sometime in the past seized you he seized me at the age of 15 and I made a good deal of mess of it for the first year or two but nevertheless I thank God that he seized me and therefore ever since then which is a good many years now it's my job to press on to take hold of that for which he took hold of me so the claim that's going around is the claim to perfection that is the claim to full salvation to be a resurrection people and we met that in 2 Timothy to be a people who are sitting with Christ in the heavenly places and therefore have left pain and perplexity and the struggle behind (coughs) and are therefore a spiritual elite a superior class as you get in every triumphalist gospel don't you I suppose the one that is running right over Africa and South Asia today is the prosperity gospel. The extraordinary thing about the prosperity gospel is only one man usually who prospers, isn't it? <laughs> and that's the pastor. And, you know, it was in the paper this week. Did you see it? The chap who has four jets? Forgotten where it was. It was extraordinary. You could hardly believe it. Four jets. Vast, vast fortune. You'd be pretty sure that his congregation is poor. After all, they've been subsidizing him to buy four jets all that time. So Paul will have none of that. I wish I'd known that earlier on, you know. I mean, we've all faced this kind of triumphless gospel. I may have told you that I met, I went to a conference when I was a student. Well, there's a lovely lady missionary, you know, a real old-fashioned lady missionary with not a lick of paint on her face and no powder on her nose and a wonderful bun on the back you know the kind of wonderful I mean she obviously was a great one and uh, she I remember standing in front of the fire it was a wonderful evening meeting and telling us that she hadn't sinned for six months I thought how marvellous you know I was I was in my early twenties and sin was a real possibility in every kind of way So what is Paul saying? He's saying everything that profited him, that was he was, of course, part of a religious elite. (laughs) And he's put all that behind, hasn't he? In order he may know Christ. So what is this suffering we're talking about? I think we sometimes need to define it. I mean, we we don't (laughs) go around gloomily pointing to young people and saying you've got to suffer. But we do have to tell them that they're going to face opposition, they're going to face misunderstanding, they're going to face betrayal by friends. They're going to face the sheer slog of being a Christian at times, the stress and the testings and the trials. And this is going to come for pastors in the future. So I think, I think some of you know that the only work of which I'm really capable now is to produce recordings of biblical material for young pastors in the future because they're going to face issues that I never had to face, aren't they? I mean, these things are getting so complex, aren't they, as we become secular? I think it's going to be extremely difficult for people to deal with these issues of transgender and all these other things that are going to rage in the future. 
But God willing, the church is going to be able to stand strong. By the way, as you know, Paul talks a great deal about boldness of speech, which actually means in the Greek word freedom of speech. I sometimes say to myself, who's going to, who are going to be the last people who exercise freedom of speech in the next 30, 40 years? Well, according to the New Testament, the people who are going to exercise freedom of speech are the Christians. And our country won't have freedom of speech in 30 years' time unless the Christians actually do it. So, you know, um, our brother over there has just been telling me about the need to be bold. If we're not bold, nobody else will be. So really all I'm just saying to you today is part really of our, our, our gospel messaging is that the message of Philippians is not all joy. Or rather, it's as full of pain in this letter as it is of joy. And therefore the message of Philippians is not just rejoice in the Lord, it's rejoice in the Lord always. It is you can rejoice in him when pain is all around you. And that's why the really heart of Philippians is this wonderful passage, verse 8, and just around it, I consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost everything. Almost certainly his parents had disowned him. Clement of Rome, I don't know who he was, but I don't know whether you've got to believe him. All these things I learned in my theological days, you know, I've forgotten most of them, I don't believe any longer. But Clement of Rome is said to say that Paul was ten times in prison. And prison wasn't like prison today, where you have uh, good food and television and all the rest of it. And if you're surrounded by pretty hateful people today in prison, as you will be, it must have been even more so then. So the message here is joy in pain because it is countered by joy in the Lord. So those, by the way, that's all really I have to say this morning. Those are the two key verses to me to under, unlock uh, something that is easily hidden in Philippians. I mean, we easily tell people don't we when we saw Philippians that he's writing to thank them for their money <laughs> and it does that right at the end and some commentaries say it's not a very gracious thank you but that of course is because receiving money was so tricky wasn't it for the apostle as it is for any evangelist and you could say too that Philippians was all about sending Timothy uh, Epaphroditus back with a good chit but underlying it in Philippians, and I think this is so important, it's the great letter of joy, but underlying it is a prisoner in Rome writing to prisoners in Philippi, people receiving appalling treatment and saying to them, yes, but you have this greatest of all blessings, joy in knowing the Lord. Amen.